Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 23, 14 through the end of the letter. Let's begin at verse 10, just over one, one column there. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. This is God's holy and inspired word. He gives it to us for our good. Before we hear this word read, let us bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your word and we, in many ways, tremble before it. We think it amazing that you have condescended to even speak to us in human language. So what is read here today, may we receive it as your word, not the word of men. And may you cleanse your servant that he may open up the meaning of your word to your people, that your church may be built up And that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only." For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the issues of local politics over the past few months has been the possible building, construction of a new casino. Towns like uh, Linwood, Calumet City, Hazelcrest, they're all vying for the, I'll put scare quotes around it, the opportunity to be the site for this new project giving me opportunity to think about some of these things and how scripture speaks of them. In the scriptures, there's an inextricable link between our work and our wages. 
And thus, it shouldn't surprise us that when we see studies done on people who have won the lottery or have this massive influx of cash, it often doesn't go well for them. Embedded into the natural order of things is that people are to be paid appropriately and fairly, which is to say not exactly equally, for their work. Proverbs chapter 13, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. But there's a promise in things like this, right? Casinos have to uh, operate on a, a promise. It's an empty promise, but a promise nonetheless. It's one that's particularly directed to the poor, those who do not have the riches that it puts before us. And the promise is that uh, risk what little you do have and you may end up with a better life, a more comfortable life, an easy life. Like I said, it's directed at the poor. We need not wonder why this casino may be built in Calumet City or Linwood and not Naperville or Northbrook or Highland Park. But there's another promise that's held out to the people of the community. If you follow the conversation around this thing in the last couple of weeks, town and village leadership, to my knowledge, not South Holland leadership, but town and village leadership have told their citizens, we will all benefit from this. It's going to improve the bottom line of everybody. And oftentimes the argument is there's a profit to be made. And if we don't make that profit, someone else will. Similar arguments were put forward for things like starting the state-sponsored lottery and also now used for the legalization of drugs that we know are harmful to communities and individuals. So the cost is civic virtue, uh, our our collective virtue in society. The cost is a a pleasant life as crime rates inevitably go up. But the payoff is a, a better bottom line, supposedly, though if you do any studies, you'll see that that's probably not the case. Uh, so, not to, I've probably showed my cards at this point, but this is why I'm a minister of the gospel and not a senator or a state representative or a mayor, right? And I like it that way. In our lives, we do all kinds of computations between the payment or the cost of something and the return on investment. The payment and the payoff. But as Christians, and particularly as Christians who uh, find their, the, the basis of all that they do and believe and say in grace, the grace that was in many ways recovered at the Reformation, we don't like introducing those kinds of transactions into spiritual conversation. That there is some kind of thing that we put in and then we get some kind of return on our investment, particularly when it comes to money. Because we see, oftentimes, when we turn on the television or we're surfing the internet, there are many people out there who give a promise, an empty promise, to God's people, oftentimes directed at the poor. If you give money to this ministry or this church or my ministry, then God will bless you abundantly with more money. He will give it back tenfold. But something that's very interesting about this passage as we close up our study on the letter to the Philippians is that Paul very clearly brings together economics and spiritual blessing. He does it in a way that makes sense with the message of grace. We'll not be surprised how he does it when we see it unfold. But there is something, there's some relationship here between cash flow and the blessing of God. This will cause us to think more deeply about the spiritual nature of the mundane things we do 
particularly our generosity in giving to the work of the gospel in the world. So we need to see how this all comes together, but we will do it with God's help. So Paul wraps up this letter. It's a beautiful and a heartfelt letter. He continues sort of summing up everything, and he's talking about this matter of the gift that the Philippians have given to him. They have sent him aid, and he has received it, and that was really the occasion for this letter. You have, uh, you have renewed your concern for me, as he says in what we read this morning. And then in today's passage, we see, he says, the matter of giving and receiving, very clearly economics kind of language, monetary aid that the Philippians had sent to him. There's a lesson here for missionaries, for giving to the work of missions in the world. There's a lesson here for giving to uh, the ministry of the local church. Our local ministry, giving, our giving to missions, it all has something to say about our love and devotion, our gratitude and our confidence in God, our rest and contentment in Him as the God of all grace. My professor, my seminary professor, Dennis Johnson, had this to say about this passage. And so I'm going to read this quote to you and we'll kind of use it as our launching point to look at this passage together. He says, you and your missionaries belong to a three-way partnership that unites grateful Christians who give, gospel heralds who go, and the living God who graciously guides them both. So we'll look at all three of those partners in that partnership The gospel heralds who go, uh, God's people who give, and the living God who graciously guides them both. In all three of those, there's going to be a payment, there's going to be a cost, and accounting the cost, and there's going to be a return on investment. There's going to be a payment and a payoff. So first, the payment of those who give the gospel message, those like Paul, Those like the missionaries who take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Those uh, who minister the gospel day by day. Paul went from town to town sowing the seed of the gospel. That was one thing that he invested. He invested the word of God into the hearts and the lives of people. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth, an agricultural illustration, but you can still see how the kind of payment and then return is in that picture as well. A couple of the costs associated with Paul's ministry. One thing was really not much cost at all. It was his absolute joy to go and proclaim Christ to the nations, to the world. On the Damascus Road, when Paul's life was changed when he encountered the living Christ, the the reigning and resurrected Christ. From that point on, he made it his life's mission and his greatest joy to see others see the supremacy of Christ that he had seen. It was his great joy to take the gospel to the ends of the known world. But another cost associated associated with this ministry was his suffering. Paul suffered greatly to be a missionary of the gospel. None of us enjoy thinking about this. None of us enjoy thinking about those who are in the world right now who are suffering for the gospel of Christ. And yet, it is a reality we must reckon with. We're forced to ask the question, and certainly 
missionaries who go into the world and who go into the world in places where the gospel is not welcome, they are forced to ask the question, is it worth it? You have to count the cost before you go, don't you? A more comfortable life for them would probably be the way to go if you look at the price tag of suffering and you say, that's too much, that's too expensive. In order for me to bear the name of Christ, the price tag is too high. Now, of course, we know that no amount of earthly suffering for the gospel, and connected to that, we might say, uh, not only those who directly bear suffering as they bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, but those who continue to confess Christ in faith as they are suffering in their lives, right? whenever we're confronted with trials, there's a testing of our faith there. Will we continue to trust and love our God and Jesus Christ in the midst of our difficulties? And of course, we know that no amount of earthly suffering for the gospel can compare with the riches of the inheritance that we have in Christ. This is why many of Paul's prayers centered around the idea of God's people grasping how great uh, the inheritance and the glory of Christ is. How great it is what we are to inherit. See, what we experience here below, it can't compare with what we have in Christ. I revisited a, a letter of Pastor Wang Yi in China. And I think I've shared even this part of the letter before. But he illustrates, uh, as the, he wrote this letter, penned this letter from his jail cell, he, he writes and he shows to us that no matter what he is put through, Uh, None of it can compare to what he has in Christ. He says, those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. See, his heart goes out to them when he realizes that what happens here below is merely temporary. He says, pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. See, the price tag for those who bear the gospel of grace, it's not too high. But there's also a return on investment. There's a a payoff in this life. There's a payoff that Paul got to see in his life as well. Look at verse 17. He says, I'm not looking for a gift. I'm not looking for money. But I am looking for what may be credited to your account. There's another translation that I think captures it a little bit better. It says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That brings the idea forth a little bit better, doesn't it? I seek the fruit, the gospel fruit, the Christian fruit, that increases to your credit. In other words, I'm looking for the fruit that you bear in your Christian obedience. As Paul ministered the gospel, as he pastored and shepherded and established churches, what he was able to witness is that those whom he pastored were able to show their love tangibly, like the Philippians did here, in tangible ways, to show their love and devotion to Christ and the kingdom in these material ways to give to his ministry. This was the prayer that Paul had for them. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1, in verse 9, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. You may grow in your love. 
with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day, for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul's great hope was that his churches would be people who are bearing abundant gospel fruit. That's why he calls them in verse 1 of chapter 4, his joy and crown. They were a display to the glory of God. They were a display to the work of God. For those who sow the gospel into the hearts of the listeners, there is no greater earthly joy than seeing those people walk in the truth. There is no greater joy for those who minister the gospel, minister the word of God, to see uh, those who hear that word walking in the midst of the truth. Paul was able to look at the Philippians, who were a poor church, by the way. We learn in the New Testament that they were, they were not a rich church like in Corinth. They were very poor. But he was able to, to look at the Philippians and he was able to say, wow, they are resting in God. They are confident in Christ. And their greatest joy is to see the kingdom grow. They're able to look at uh, the spiritual realities of the kingdom of Christ And they're able to look at their earthly bottom line and they make sacrifices on one side of the ledger to advance the work of the kingdom. They're resting in God. So that's the payment of those who give the gospel. Secondly is the payment of those who sow material resources. As we were just talking about, the Philippians, those who give to the work of the gospel. Time and again, We read in verse 16 that the Philippians had uh, shared their resources with Paul to help his ministry. You can read about this in Acts chapters 16 and 17. Paul is in Philippi and then he leaves Philippi to go to Thessalonica. Right as he leaves, uh, we know that the Philippians gave to his ministry and they gave again and again. What's the cost? What's the cost of payment for the Philippians or for anyone who gives to the work of the gospel in the world where it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? The cost is what you write down on the check, the loss of whatever resources you give. As a poor church, most of these people would feel the loss of every dollar. They didn't have dollars back then, but you get the point. Feel the loss of every dollar. Every dollar you give could go to something that's not leisure or entertainment. You could use it to something, uh, in something in your life that perhaps you could say you have need of. And yet we read that the gift they gave to Paul was an overflowing gift. It was an abundant gift. It, it met all of Paul's needs and beyond. And then in verse 18, we read something of the payoff, the return on investment. And here's where we see the economic and the religious come together in this beautifully mysterious way. Now, first, I'll say from the outset that when we're talking about this, blessing from God can't be bought, right? You can't buy grace. Grace is something that's given as a gift, and we'll come to that later in today's sermon. Grace can't be bought, but uh, our money, our earthly resources are a tangible way for us to express the spiritual reality that's in our heart. And so when our resources are given in genuineness, in genuine faith and genuine obedience, we see that here Paul says what was given was a fragrant offering to God. 
This, of course, pulls uh, imagery from the altar in the temple. When a proper sacrifice was made, the meat would be placed on the altar and there would be this aroma that would ascend. And the picture was it ascends up into heaven and because it was a sacrifice given genuinely in genuine faith and properly according to the temple regulations, it was a pleasing aroma to God. The picture there that we can all relate to is a wonderful meal that's being cooked in the kitchen And as it reaches your nostrils, you are drawn to the kitchen, or you're at least drawn to say, wow, that smells good. I can't wait till we partake of that wonderful meal. It's a pleasing aroma. The point is that God was pleased with the generous gift that the Philippians had given to Paul, and it was regarded as an act of worship. It was regarded as their rightly serving their God. And so the first thing that we can mention from this is that in the Christian life, pleasing God with what we do as we stand in grace is possible, right? As Romans 5 says, where we come to faith in Christ and we then stand in grace. And this allows us to live according to this new radical principle of grace where we're welcomed into fellowship with the God of all the universe. And because of that status that we have, forgiven, justified, cleansed, what we do can be pleasing to God. It doesn't add to our acceptance before God, but what we do can please God. Sometimes... We can overly focus on our total inability and sinfulness, both of which are abundantly true. And we can convince ourselves that the only sense in which God is pleased with us is as as he considers our faith in Christ and that standing in Christ. Now, that certainly is the foundation of God's acceptance of us. But as you read in Ephesians chapter 2, God has ordained a road of good works for us to walk on. And so we need to keep this in mind, and it's something that's very simple, but it's huge in its implications. I want to be precise, so I'll read what I have here. Because God has accepted me by faith in Christ and welcomed me into this grace in which I now stand, the good works that I do in genuine faith and obedience are going to be a fragrant and pleasing offering to my God. That's a wonderful thing to think about, isn't it? That the good works that we do in genuine faith and obedience are going to be a fragrant and pleasing offering to our God. Excuse me. We've got uh, cold season, apparently, right? All the kids are sick. We're all, we're all sick. Everybody's sick. Okay? Um, the good works that we do in genuine faith and obedience are going to be a fragrant and pleasing offering to my God. Not just in the realm of money. Not just in the realm of finances, right? This is the good works that we do in genuine faith and obedience by the power of the Spirit in uh, accordance with the law of God. It can be a fragrant and pleasing offering to our God. And if that does not motivate us unto greater obedience, then nothing will. If, if you do not, or if you're not able to look at that opportunity and say, I can please my God, the God who saved me by giving his son for me, and I can please him through my spirit-wrought obedience in my life, then nothing will motivate us to it. 
So Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul speaks of this. He says, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. I ask that your knowledge may abound, your love may abound, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. But then to return to this problem, just to make sure that we understand that some of you may have read this sermon title and may have sent you for a little bit of a jolt, right? Give that you may get. And that's, uh, and really we need to make sure that this is not some kind of assault on grace. It's God's free gift is salvation. That's the spiritual air that we breathe. That's how we live before our God is in grace and by grace. But he's ordained these good works for us to do. But then there's perhaps the further problem. A passage like this is often used to advance some kind of prosperity gospel or prosperity preaching where the preacher may misuse Paul's words and say, if you provide for me, God will provide for you. And the kind of of formula that is introduced is that money plus faith that God can provide your health and wealth and prosperity, that will equal more earthly riches. Money plus faith equals more money. In that sense, the church often becomes like a lottery or a casino, praying especially on the poor. It becomes this kind of opportunity to increase in earthly wealth. I was thinking about this this week, the notion of how uh, the notion of, of health being tied to our faith is especially dangerous. Sometimes it, not just money, but it's health. I was visiting with our brother uh, Roger this past week, and there was someone that he had come across. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if it was in Chicago or where he is now in Ingalls. Uh, he had come across someone who had said something like, um, if you have more faith, God will heal you. If you have enough faith, God will heal you. And God will heal anyone who has enough faith. And really, as we chewed on that a little bit, that's perhaps the most depressing way to have to view the world. For someone who thinks like that, if they step into a hospital and they see all kinds of suffering that would break your heart, just break your heart, And the only thing that they can conclude is that everyone who lays in that hospital bed simply doesn't have enough faith. Not to mention that there is really, what do you even do with death in that kind of a system? Can anyone, if you have enough faith, can you simply never die? It doesn't make any sense in a fallen world. And it's so destructive to teach people those kinds of things. I, I heard of a, of a dear sister in Christ who is struggling at a church in this area, a church that tends to preach that kind of a message, and she had all kinds of struggles in her life. Sickness, death of loved ones, financial struggles, and she was going to the leadership of her church begging for, for some kind of spiritual direction and help. And every time they kept saying, you need more faith, you need more faith, God's going to, to wipe away all these problems. She had a very difficult life. And after years of struggling, they essentially told her, you need to go and worship somewhere else because we don't have any help that we can give you because you, apparently you just can't achieve this level 
of faith. You know how destructive that is. And what cuts against all of that in this passage is the way that the transaction happens. What is the payout? Paul isn't saying, if you give money, you're going to get, you're going to get more money. Money becomes an abundance of spiritual riches. Earthly resources given in genuine faith and obedience to the work of the gospel in service to your great God becomes an abundance of communion with God. It becomes an overflowing uh, cup of blessing, of joy in the Holy Spirit, living in, in the freedom and confidence that money and finances, which imprisons so many in this world, has not imprisoned you because you have found a deeper joy in loving and serving your God in king. It's an already and not yet payoff. Christians are called to hold their earthly riches with an open hand because we cannot buy what is truly valuable. It doesn't matter what is the bottom line of all of our checking and savings and investment accounts. That number, whatever that is, that cannot buy you grace. That cannot buy you Christ. And so you hold it with an open hand because what is truly valuable comes By God's grace. And it comes in the next life. But it's not only in the next life. Paul's point is that there is this fruit of joy and satisfaction in your God that comes to you and is shown tangibly by your willingness to share in the ministry of the gospel. Just like the Philippians did here. That's why Paul rejoiced. He saw them living in the satisfaction of Christ. He saw them wanting to serve Christ and love him and know him more. There's also this promise that the Heavenly Father knows our needs. Our Heavenly Father, he knows our needs. And he's promised to be with us and provide for us. Right? My God will meet your needs. That's what he's promised to do. He's not promised to make us rich. He promises to meet our needs until we reach the appointed time where he will bring us home. Well, we need to go to the last partner of this partnership here, and it is God. And and what we will see is that God is not only the one who holds all of this together, he's the one who begins this partnership by his grace. So third, the payment of the one who gave the greatest treasure. The payment of the one who gave the greatest treasure. A couple of things just as we wrap up here. The first is that if we are standing in grace, if we are standing in Christ, if I may try to redeem a little bit of that casino illustration, if we're standing in grace, we are really playing with house money. We're playing with house money, if I may use a crude expression to show it. We play with house money in two ways. The first is that the Christian who affirms God's sovereignty, that he is in control of all things, we know that all that we have comes from God. We would have nothing of what we have if he had not willed us to have it. All of our money is really his. All of our resources are really his. Not that he needs it or wants it for himself, but we would not have anything to share if it were not for the will of God. And the second way that we're playing with house money, is that we only have the power to obey God, to sacrifice, and to give in these ways if we are captivated by the grace, if we are saved by the grace that goes before us. 
We can only please God as we do all of these things in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And so it all begins with an initial investment that God made into the church, into the world. God loves first and God gives first. And what was the price tag? What what was the investment for the Father? The price was steepest for him, wasn't it? What was his payment? If God was to redeem a people for himself, what was the cost to be? He had to give his son. He had to give the greatest treasure in all the universe. The perfect object of his love and delight. We will never be able to plumb the depths of the father's love for the son. We will never be able to fully grasp how much the Father loves the Son. But he counted the cost. And he gave the Son. That the Son might come and cancel out the certificate of debt that stood against us because of our sin. And what is the return on investment? What is the payoff for such a great payment? We see it in verse 20 of our passage here today. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. You see, God will be glorified in his creation. We could extrapolate this out to the Son. The Son had to make a payment. And because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He went through the suffering, despising the shame. He's now seated at the right hand of God. As we confess today in Philippians chapter 2, God has highly exalted him and he has given him a name above every name so that at his name all creation will bow before him and worship him. A payment and a payoff for both the Father and the Son. But returning to the Father... To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. He will be glorified in his creation. But he will be forever glorified, especially by those whom he has made to be his own. Whom he has redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. And who are so filled with love and devotion and gratitude and awe that their greatest joy is to live for his glory. If you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, that is to be your greatest joy. To live for the glory of God. To give all glory to him and to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. The payoff is that just as the book of Revelation says, there will be a people gathered around the throne of the Lamb, praising God and Christ and giving him all the glory. This is the investment that goes before us. And God gives it to us by his grace. And he allows us to live for him and for his glory on the earth. And when we are given the opportunity to, in tangible ways, express the confidence that we have in our God, he can be pleased with what we do when we do it in genuine obedience. We give because he gave the Son. We end the study of this great letter here. The reminder that it begins and ends with God's grace And his sovereign power and will. But it is a challenge to us as well. We are confronted with that kind of love and devotion. We need to ask ourselves, am I so in love with Christ 
that I have made it my greatest joy to give all the glory to God and to magnify the name of Jesus Christ in every area of my life. That I look at everything that God has given me, every opportunity, every day that lays before me, that he gives to me, and I say, how can I glorify God here and now with what comes from his hand? Scripture says that our money, our resources, it will all go to where our heart heart is. The Bible doesn't tell us to be flippant about money, to throw it all away. But it is one way that we can show our joy, our contentment, and our confidence is all in God and in Christ. We show also that our greatest hope, our greatest joy, is not in any earthly security, but to see the number of those who confess Christ, to see the number of those who are in love with God's glory, to see that number increase on the earth. For one day, he will make his reign known to the ends of the earth, where wherever the sun shines, Jesus shall reign. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your grace and your mercy. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this beautiful letter that you uh, wrote to your church by the power of your spirit and we thank you that um, that you have welcomed us into fellowship and that you give us opportunity to to live in ways that please you as we stand in grace we thank you for our intercessor jesus christ that as we live by faith as we stumble and fall uh, he continues to make that inheritance sure and certain we pray in his name amen